This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levoque, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. In today's episode, Monique and I are going to be discussing chronic pain and autoimmune conditions in neurodiversity, and of course, in women who are neurodiverse in particular. So this is a topic that we have been really keen to cover in season two, and we've actually got a number of private messages from people requesting that we discuss this topic, which really speaks to, you know, the prevalence of autoimmune conditions, chronic pain in women with neurodiversity. So fortunately, this is actually one of Monique's specialties. So Monique works a lot with individuals who have autoimmune conditions and chronic pain. So today I'd really like to pick Monique's brain about these topics and really unpack why is it that this population, you know, neurodivergent women, tend to experience chronic pain or immune conditions more frequently than men or neurotypical individuals? And what can we actually do about it? So what's the treatment around it and how do we manage some of these conditions? So I came to be interested in this area in my undergraduate studies in psychology, where I did an elective in health psychology. And I found it absolutely fascinating to learn about the interplay between society psychology and health. So that triggered my fascination with the topic. And then when I was doing my master's of clinical psychology, I had a little bit of a burnout um, and ended up developing a autoimmune disease, um, which was then followed by two more autoimmune diseases. Um, So I'm someone that is personally familiar with living with chronic conditions and trying to build your health um, and have a good quality of life. And when I started to specialize in treating trauma, I noticed a trend where the majority of my clients who are usually female or who identify as female um, were coming in wanting to work on their trauma or PTSD would also have a lot of health conditions, autoimmune disease, or chronic pain conditions in addition to trauma. Um, And looking into the trauma research, I started seeing the link between trauma and developing autoimmune diseases and chronic pain. Um, And then when going into learning about neurodiversity, seeing a link there again. And the majority of my clients, again, are women um, who have trauma, who are neurodiverse, who also have chronic pain and health conditions. Um, Quite a specific group. (laughs) Yes, it is. And so I'm just really lucky that actually in the first few years of practice, because of my interest in health psychology, I did a lot of training in sleep psychology and also how to treat chronic pain and all the trauma and all of it sort of came together as sort of like the perfect treatment Mm. options for my clients. So I might just ask, you know, we've mentioned this idea of chronic pain a few times. Can you just explain to us what actually is chronic pain? There are two categories that we place pain in. There is acute pain and chronic pain. 
So with acute pain, a person might have had an injury um, or a diagnosis of a condition that causes pain. If they've broken their leg or they've had surgery, normally that pain will be acute when the injury is healing. And then when the condition has settled down or the injury's healed or you've recovered from your surgery, the pain will go away. So normally that's within a three-month period after the initial injury. But what can happen is after an initial injury um, where you've had a surgery or you've broken a bone, um, you've been diagnosed with a condition, is after that three-month period, the signals in your body and the parts of your brain that process pain are still actually lighting up and being activated even though the initial injury may have healed. And so what's happened is the person's central nervous system has become sensitized to injury signals and the pain sensation continues after that 12-week period. And so the pain goes from acute pain into chronic pain Mm. and there will be sometimes underlying injuries and conditions that are contributing to sending signals through the central nervous system to the part of your brain that processes pain and are keeping that pain signal going. And then sometimes what's happened is the original injury has resolved or healed, but the nervous system has become so sensitized that those signals are still going and that part of the brain is still overactive. And the interesting thing with pain is that we actually still don't know a lot about pain and chronic pain. Um, We're still doing a lot more research trying to understand because, of course, people want to understand, like, why am I still feeling so crappy and in pain, you know, all these months later? Why is this pain still continuing? Why is it becoming more severe over time? Yeah. And as you were going through that explanation of chronic pain, uh, you know, the brain still receiving all these signals of pain, even after the initial injury has healed or dissipated or would otherwise have been expected to be resolved. Um, That's just fascinating to me that, you know, something that we can think of as tangible as pain, you know, pain is a super super helpful response that our brain and our body has evolved, which is, okay, stop doing that thing, (laughs) you know, that's putting you in danger. Something that seems as tangible as pain can actually be created in our minds. And that's not to say that it's not real and that you're not experiencing, it absolutely is. And so much of what we experience is actually down to the ways that our brains and bodies and nervous systems are interacting with our environment, are communicating to each other, are functioning. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, or there can be a lot of shame around people experiencing chronic health conditions or chronic pain, because I think there's a lack of understanding in the general community or general population around what it's like to have a condition like that. And it can look from the outside like nothing's happening to you. You know, oh my God, are you still sick? Oh my God, that injury was so long ago. Why are you still in pain? You must be faking it. Mm. And I think the really big distinction between an external environmental trigger, like, no, I'm not being punched in the leg right now, this second, but my brain is still telling me that I am. Mm. And there's actually no difference in the truth or reality of either of those experiences. Yeah, I've actually never met a person that was quote unquote faking their pain, Mm. like never, Mm. never. Why would you? (laughs) Why would you be like, you know what I think will be really fun Mm. today? 
I'm going to pretend for years that I'm in debilitating pain. Mm. I think that would just be great. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) so great. (laughs) Yeah, and I think um, the point really is is that a person's pain is real. It's 100% real, but pain is weird. Mm. Um, It behaves in weird ways. There's still not 100% explanations for, um, you know, why some people – end up in chronic pain after an illness or injury and why others don't end up in chronic pain after an illness or injury. One of the other things that actually blew my mind when I did the training around treating chronic pain is that the amount of uh, damage to your physical body doesn't always equate to the amount of pain that a person is in. It really can be more about the nervous system and how your brain processes um, sensory stimuli Um Because, yeah, they've done studies where people have, you know, presented in extreme pain and they've done like scans and MRIs and stuff of like their back and they're in back pain and their back is is stuffed basically. Like Mm. it's it's really bad. It's horrific. And then there's been uh, like in the study they've taken in and just scanned like random people's backs and found that there have been people who have had like a lot of damage to their back but they're not in any pain and they're not like actually aware that their back Mm. is screwed. Mm. Um, So again, yeah, it's just interesting to note that sometimes the amount of pain you're in doesn't necessarily equate to the amount of physical damage to your body. I might be jumping ahead here, Monique, but I'm wondering as well, you know, when we're thinking about this sort of nebulous, slippery idea of what is pain, um, it sounds to me a lot like some of the things that you've chatted about previously around trauma load. So, you know, if you have had previous um, trauma experiences or your capacity for stress, your kind of window of tolerance is smaller, basically because you've had more things kind of stacking up. Then if you experience an illness or an injury or something that could be the trigger for a chronic pain event, um, is it the case that you're more likely to experience that as chronic pain, whereas someone who's got more space might be less likely? Potentially, yeah. Like most of the people that I've worked with that um, were presenting with really severe chronic pain also had PTSD Mm. from the actual injury that they Mm. sustained. So they had this ongoing state of fight or flight in their nervous system and hypervigilance about the traumatic injury that, you know, they had plus chronic pain. I think it's also good to mention that um, with trauma as well, um, and I, I think I've mentioned this in a in our previous season of the podcast, that there is a link between having gone through childhood trauma um, and developing lots of health problems as an adult, including autoimmune disease. If you've experienced a lot of trauma, you might end up with a lot more health issues that lead to chronic pain because of an accumulation of Mm. different autoimmune diseases or conditions and then also engaging more with the medical system um, and going through treatments and things like that there are some aspects of that that can be traumatizing for people Um, and a lot of people that have uh, chronic illness and are quite severely ill actually have a lot of medical trauma I find the link between chronic trauma and increased risk for autoimmune conditions really fascinating because I think it underscores in a way that is just such a flashing neon light 
the link between our experiences and our nervous system health. Because autoimmune conditions are so interesting. It's basically our immune system, which is designed to protect us, being hyper alert, hyper vigilant, and essentially attacking itself. Mm. So it makes logical sense why someone who has grown up in an environment where their nervous system had to be on high alert, that they're then uh, experiencing the downside of that, which is you want your immune system to be active, obviously, but up until a point. Yeah, and you need to be able to come out of that state of fight or flight or freeze and actually be able to rest. And that's the theory behind this sort of correlation between trauma and autoimmune disease is that the person's nervous system is in fight or flight for so long that it can't rest and repair itself and, you know, their body shows the toll of it basically. And, And look, if you're a woman, with even without all of the trauma stuff, just being a woman, you're actually much, much more likely to be at risk for autoimmune diseases. Um, And there's a couple of different factors for that. One theory is the hormonal side of things um, where your hormones can interact with your nervous system and your endocrine system and make you more at risk, um, particularly during like different hormonal fluctuations. And the second is a genetic reason. So having um, the XX chromosome uh, makes you more at risk of like mutations genetically um, than men who have the XY chromosome. And yeah, there's been studies that have estimated that up to 80% of patients diagnosed with autoimmune diseases are women. I think as we go through all of this as well, it just becomes clear, you know, how many different factors there are in things like, you know, chronic health conditions, chronic pain, um, autoimmune conditions. And that figure that you quoted, Monique, that, you know, 80% of patients with an autoimmune condition are women is fascinating. And I wonder if partly that's to do with, you know, the biological genetic components that you just went through, but also because women are more likely to experience trauma. And as we've discussed, we know that there's a link between trauma and autoimmune conditions. Yeah. In the adverse events um, study, that was like the first piece of research that links trauma with an impact on people's health, they actually showed that the female children were exposed to a lot more trauma than the male children Mm. um, and a lot more sexual abuse as Mm. well, so the type of abuse. And um, not only are women more likely to experience uh, trauma in certain forms than men, but neurodivergent women are actually more at risk of experiencing trauma and sexual abuse than neurotypical women. Yeah, and I think when we're thinking about neurodivergent women, we really have to consider trauma in the context of a double load almost. So, you know, in previous episodes, we've talked about the difference between big T's and little t traumas, you know, little t's being those kind of chronic traumas throughout our life. And for all neurodivergent people, they often experience little t's, uh, whether that be sensory stuff, um, social, social side of things, um, mismatch between, you know, their brain and environmental expectations. But for neurodivergent women and particularly autistic women, exactly as you mentioned, Monique, they're much more likely to experience sexual trauma. Um, And so we've got this kind of double trauma load and it makes sense why 
this is kind of putting neurodivergent women at ripe kind of place to develop an autoimmune condition or a chronic health condition. Yeah, absolutely. And with autoimmune disease, a lovely fact that I learned when I developed my first one is (laughs) that if you have an autoimmune disease, you are then more at risk of developing further autoimmune diseases just by having one. Mm. And then the more you have, the more you're at risk of developing. So Mm. it's just like a compounding Mm. factor. Well, and I think that fits with everything that we've ever talked about, (laughs) um, you know, on the podcast and I guess just, you know, assumed knowledge in psychology, you know, medical practice, that type of thing, is that it is compounding. The body compounds, whether we're talking about the mind, the nervous system, the body, you know, it compounds both positively and negatively. Mm. So, yeah, if you are going down that path of all these compounding stresses on your nervous system, and I use stresses as a very broad kind of concept, then, yeah, it makes sense that it's going to set you up for more later on. Yeah, and I think um, with identifying as female, being a woman as well, um, unfortunately there hasn't been as much research into like autoimmune conditions and conditions that tend to occur just in women, like hormonal and endocrine conditions. Um, Like when I was looking at some of the research, it wasn't until the 90s in America that people started to investigate um, like gender differences and sex differences in medical research. Um, And in the UK, it wasn't until 2016 that the NHS put in place that you have to like account for these gender differences in like medical research. So unfortunately, there's not as much recognition and treatments available and Uh, as many of our listeners will have probably experienced, if you go to the doctor or a specialist with chronic pain or complaining of symptoms, women's pain is actually more likely to be dismissed and is undertreated and not taken as seriously and often dismissed as anxiety. And you know, the same effect is compounded even more for people of color. Their conditions and pain is more likely to be dismissed. So if you are a neurodivergent woman who's a person of color, um, yeah, it's going to be rough. Um, and just an example of this is something like endometriosis. So currently it takes up to 10 years to actually get a diagnosis of endometriosis between when a person, you know, might first feel symptoms and go to the doctor and when they're actually diagnosed with it. So by the time you actually get a diagnosis and access to treatment, a lot of the time the person's condition is actually more severe and resulting in more severe pain as well. There's a really great book written by Caroline Criado Perez uh, called Invisible Women. And it's basically about the gender bias in research. Um, it's, it's fantastic. I would definitely recommend having a read over it. And it highlights a lot of the things that Monique, you've mentioned where, uh, women aren't accounted for in medical research. And exactly as you said, Monique, if you're a woman and a person of color, then it's even more difficult to be taken seriously and have your pain taken seriously and have your concerns taken seriously. The further you digress from that definition of what a quote normal person looks like, and in Western countries, that is a 
able-bodied, cis, straight, white, neurotypical man, the less likely you are to be accounted for in things as simple as city design, you know, things as important as medical research. So, you know, being aware of these biases in our society is really, really important when we think about access to mental health care, medical care. And the more that you can arm yourself and expand your knowledge on why these things are the case, what's actually going on, what's the research around them, the better placed you are to advocate for yourself within these systems. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it would be good to actually have a look through the research on neurodiversity and chronic pain and autoimmune disease and actually look at some statistics because, again, knowledge is power. Um, and even just knowing the link between some of these things can save people years and years of not being diagnosed and not being treated for these conditions and being able to go to their doctor and go, hey, I have some concerns here. In one study, they found autistic children are about twice as likely as their neurotypical peers to experience chronic or repeated pain. And those that had co-occurring developmental conditions such as epilepsy or intellectual disability were even more likely to have chronic pain. There's been a lot of studies um, recently investigating pain in autism. And some of the studies are showing that people who are autistic may experience pain differently than neurotypical people do. Um, so it's actually showing that their pain is more severe and their experience of pain is more severe and they have more pain-related anxiety than neurotypical people. And the theory behind this is that a person's pain who's autistic might be compounded by their sensory sensitivities and also just the, the higher rate of having like multiple medical conditions, basically. That makes a lot of sense um, around, you know, experiencing pain differently if your sensory processing is also different to what's typical. Um, firstly, in the sense of, you know, your actual processing of pain signals and pain information can be different. And it's interesting that you talk about autistic children being more likely to experience chronic pain. Um, the flip side of that is I often have clients who have an incredibly high pain threshold. So I think that just speaks to the fact that autistic individuals process incoming sensory information from the environment differently to neurotypical people. And the other side of that is differences in sensory processing more generally. So, you know, if you're feeling kind of jangled or overstimulated or having sensory um, distress in other areas of your sensory system, then that is going to amplify any pain signals because your body is just in more distress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because I think historically there was this belief that, oh, yeah, autistic people don't feel pain, um, which I think is kind of like that whole dehumanizing sort of aspect of things. Um, but also because there are some individuals who may have difficulty with interception, so being able to sense when they're in pain and then difficulty like communicating pain and distress. So there was just this like widespread assumption, oh, yeah, they don't really feel pain. Well, actually, the research is showing that autistic people actually experience more severe pain um, than neurotypical people are more sensitive to it. 
And again, there's individual processing differences and um, some people may be hypersensitive to it. Yeah. And what I often find is that for a lot of autistic individuals, um, the experience of sensory information is often at one extreme right? It's either, you know, I really enjoy this sensation um, or, you know, input, or I really don't. And it makes sense that that's the case. That would be the case for pain as well, that, you Mm. know, if you are hypersensitive to pain or you have differences in the way that your brain processes pain, um, that's going to be quite intense. Yeah. And I think if you are someone who's autistic and you have trouble picking up on the fact that you're in pain that can and also difficulty communicating that you're in pain that has actually in the past led to um, autistic people actually like presenting to hospital um, and medical staff having more difficulty knowing what's going on what mm. do we treat and often they can actually end up presenting with a really severe condition because it wasn't picked up on um, mm. in time unfortunately. Mm. There was actually another really interesting study on kids and teens um, that were patients at a complex pain clinic, so for severe, complex, uh, chronic pain conditions. And what the researchers did is they actually just screened everyone, every kid and teen in the entire clinic for autism and ADHD. And super interesting, they actually found that 13.7% of the kids met the criteria for autism and 19.9% of the kids met the criteria for ADHD. So when you combine that, that's 26% of these kids at a chronic pain clinic for severe pain. So that's quite a high percentage. Um, Only 4.8% of the kids had previously been diagnosed with either autism or ADHD. So it was a whole bunch of undiagnosed kiddos at this chronic pain clinic. Um, And what they found is among the kids that were autistic, girls were more prevalent. So more uh, autistic girls were presenting to the clinic. The parents were reporting that they had worse health and that their pain was more likely triggered by being in school. And this kind of mirrors an anecdotal pattern that I've noticed where um, I've seen a lot of people, uh, particularly girls who are autistic, as soon as they start high school, chronic pain, Mm -hmm. migraines, yeah, health conditions. And I just wonder if maybe the sensory overload um, of high school really contributes to some of that. Yeah, and look, I completely agree with you in, you know, anecdotally noticing a lot more health issues, uh, somatic symptoms, so body-based symptoms when girls go into high school. Um, I think the sensory part is probably a big part, but I would actually probably say the biggest impact is the executive functioning component of high school and the social load yeah, of high school. Definitely. You know, you go from being in primary school where even if it's not the best primary school, it's still, you go to one class, you know, you have your teacher, it's quite a nurturing environment or it's more nurturing than high school. Then you go to a high school environment where all of a sudden you're expected to make this huge developmental jump. And for a lot of girls on the spectrum, it feels like all the other girls around them got the memo and they didn't get the memo for Mm. what's expected of them now. And so that causes huge amounts of stress, huge amounts of emotional distress, internal discomfort. And often these girls either don't have a safe person that they can talk to about this 
or, you know, and keeping in mind we're talking about 11, 12-year-olds, so not many, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-olds have this ability, but, you know, don't have the capacity to kind of be self-aware and think about what's going on for them and articulate their internal experience. And also those interoceptive issues can make it really difficult for them to identify what's anxiety, what's distress, what's sensory overload. And then in addition, you know, a lot of them don't have a diagnosis of autism, so they don't have the language. So, you know, what often happens, as I'm sure you've come across in your adult clients as well, Monique, is that when we are overwhelmed with, you know, distress, stress, emotional overload, it's often our body's way of signaling distress to manifest that in a physical way, Mm. um, you know, to basically send up the distress call Mm -hmm. through making our body Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and yeah just getting you to stop exactly stop the demand exactly you know i can't do this anymore Mm. yeah yeah so super interesting that in the the study um the parents and kids were reporting that their pain was more likely to be triggered by school but in the kids with adhd in the ADHD kids, there weren't any gender differences that were found in this study and the pain was reported to be more likely triggered by the family situation and new situations. Mm. Um, And what the study also suggested is that there really needs to be clinical assessment in chronic pain clinics. Um, And and for me, I think whether it's pediatric or adult chronic pain clinics, um, there needs to be screening for neurodiversity that's Mm. undiagnosed, that's presenting. And um, one of the things you should be looking out for as a clinician is if you have someone that's presenting with um, chronic pain, multiple health conditions, um, yeah, you should be screening for neurodiversity. So we've talked about autistic people being found in research to be more sensitive to pain, um, but there have also been studies showing that adults with ADHD were more sensitive to pain compared with controls. And there's been a few studies showing as well that um, people with ADHD were reporting that they had lower levels of pain when being on stimulant medication. Um, which I think is super interesting. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense because, you know, when you're on that stimulant medication, it really helps to um, direct your focus to one thing, zone out other distractions or other things that, you know, might be competing for your brain's attention at that time. You know, we know that stimulant medication decreases appetite as well, um, makes it harder to sleep for a lot of people. So we know that the stimulant medication does an incredible job for the most part at helping you focus on something and helping your behavior be goal directed, but it really dampens down a lot of our body's cues, our body's natural cues. So yeah, it makes sense that, you know, similarly to dampening down sleep cues, hunger cues, it can also dampen down our pain cues as well. Mm. Yeah. And there's been different studies looking at like the prevalence of uh, chronic pain in autistic women and ADHD women. Um, And one study that was actually a longitudinal um, study that looked at quality of life as well, found that three quarters of the women who were neurodivergent reported chronic pain 
um, and quality of life was lower overall when people were reporting chronic pain, Mm. um, which makes sense. Mm. I mean, it's Mm. harder to do the things that you want to do and connect with people if you're in pain all the time. Um, It was saying that uh, headache and abdominal pain were the most common in this group of women. There's also been studies linking fibromyalgia to ADHD and fibromyalgia is a condition with widespread pain throughout the body. They also have found in studies that 90% of people with fibromyalgia are women. So when I was looking at the research, there is also a higher presentation of migraines um, in people who are autistic and migraines do more commonly occur in women as well. There is also a link between autism and joint hypermobility. So there's several different types of joint mobility um, diseases that people will have, but they found that one of the most common that was linked to autism is Ehlers-Danlob syndrome, which is just your body's not really producing collagen in the right way to support your body, resulting in a lot of joint pain and dislocations and things like that. So, Monique, how do you typically approach um, supporting the management of chronic pain and autoimmune conditions in the neurodivergent population? Yeah, so it starts with, um, again, assessment. So really trying to understand um, the pattern of the person's uh, chronic pain. Um, We get people to fill out questionnaires and fill out a diary where we look at um, you know, rating their pain throughout the day on a scale of zero to 10, rating uh, what their activities they're doing throughout the day, what was their level of stress, their mood, um, and just looking for relationships between the two. Um, we also do a lot of psychoeducation on pain and the nervous system um, and the role of being in fight, flight or freeze and chronic pain and health conditions. The main treatment is along the lines of the cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness-based therapy slash acceptance and commitment therapy, where we're looking at as well like the role of the person's thinking and worrying about their pain um, and how sometimes that can elevate your fight or flight response, which can actually feed into perception of pain Mm. as well as stress. Um, So we look at strategies um, for managing thoughts about the person's pain and their level of distress associated with that. Um, We also have behavioral strategies, um, which is something called pacing, And it's just about being aware that if you actually push yourself when you have chronic pain or an autoimmune condition and you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, you're actually going to end up exacerbating your pain Mm. and having what we call a boom and bust. So a boom and bust happens when someone maybe has a good day with their chronic pain. So maybe they're feeling a bit better and they think, great, I'm going to get out and do two hours of gardening. I'm going to mow the lawn and vacuum. Mm. And they try to do everything they can in that day because they actually feel like pretty good. And then what ends up happening is they have a bust. Mm. Um, So they boom their activity level and then they bust. And then they have like a lashback effect with pain or chronic illness symptoms where the next day they might be bedridden and in an extreme amount of pain. 
And it's about realizing that every time you go through a boom and bust, you're actually sensitizing your nervous system more to those pain and injury signals. Mm. Um, and the more you sensitize your nervous system, the less you'll be able to do without experiencing those higher amounts of pain. So sometimes we really take um, like your activity levels back down and we try and find like what is the baseline of what you can do without having a flare up of pain and eventually actually making the chronic pain worse. Um, and many people, by the time they've come to me, they've had years and years of booming and busting and just really like pushing themselves to try and function the way everyone else is functioning. And it takes such a toll. Yeah, and I can completely understand why someone would want to do that. You know, if you're feeling better, it's sort of like, fantastic, I can have a normal day. I can do all the things I wanted to do. The way you're explaining it, Monique, it almost kind of sounds like to me when we go through those sort of boom-bust cycles, it's almost approving your immune system, your nervous system right, which is, yes, it is dangerous. Bad things do happen, which in turn makes it more alert going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, when we have that baseline, um, we can like push up the level of activity to the point where eventually you desensitize your nervous system and you can do more without having the boom and bust, but you really find your personal limit mm. of what you can do without that. And that's different for everyone. Um, and depending on like what conditions you have as well. Um, and yeah, there is a lot of frustration with chronic pain and chronic illness about like, ah, oh, I just can't do as much as I want to do. I have so many things I want to do and I just can't do it. This is holding me back. And it's very, very frustrating. Um, like I definitely understand that, but yeah, it's not, not about actually like curing a person's chronic pain. Um, it's really about managing it and finding a level that they can live with. Um, and trying to promote that quality of life and being able to have um, that activity level where you can engage in things that um, you want to, but to a level that's not going to exacerbate your chronic pain. And so sometimes that involves, you know, exploring in therapy things around uh, reducing your stress and burnout, trying to live a low stress lifestyle, teaching, uh, exploring boundaries with people. Like a lot of people have difficulty saying no um, and feel guilty about having chronic pain or illness and not being able to do certain things. And that can contribute to booming and busting. As you're talking about creating a life that's actually sustainable for you, I wonder if you can't do the thing that is, say, you know, the top tier thing that you really wanted to do, What's a version of that thing that you can do that is manageable and sustainable for you? So even with, you know, social interaction, it might be, okay, it's way too tiring for me to spend a whole day at my family's place having lunch, you know, whatever. What is tolerable and manageable for me, for my nervous system, is to go for 20 minutes. So I'm going to say, yep, I'm going to pop in 20 minutes. I'm going to help with lunch and then I'm going to have a quick bite and I'm going to go, right? So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Mm. If you can't do the thing that is, you know, everyone else is doing or that you really want to do, what's an element of that that you can do? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just figuring out your priorities and, and what's actually, you know, 
important to you. Um, but with neurodiversity, I think a big component of managing chronic pain and preventing booming and busting is actually managing all of the demands on mm. the person's nervous system. So looking at the work that you're doing, if you're working or studying, looking at like how much energy you're spending on socializing, looking at your sensory needs, because having that different sensory processing system and being in constant sensory overload can definitely contribute to chronic pain and chronic illness. And so if you know from an early age, oh I'm neurodivergent I'm autistic I'm an ADHDer these are my needs these are my boundaries you know this is a situation that I'm going to put myself in but I can't put myself in this other situation because it will mm. result in a, a burnout and a breakdown of my system basically um, then you can actually prevent um, potentially some of these things from getting to the point they get to when people come and see me in their 30s 40s and 50s and that's why I'm always a big advocate for diagnosis um, because then you have the access to this information and you can really try and do what you have control of um, to prevent some of these stresses where you can want more neurodivergent content head to our page on patreon our patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources additional information on episode content responses to listener questions book reviews and mental health tip sheets you can find a link to our patreon in the show notes and on our website www.ndwomanpod.com we really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.